You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hello, Gabby. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How has life been treating you? I understand that you just moved from Malaysia to Singapore, right? Yes, I've been in Singapore about two months now. It's, it's been interesting. Um, it's a lot of uh, same but different, obviously, between Malaysia and Singapore. But uh, so far, so good. I really like it. The, I guess the main difference when it comes to day-to-day life in Singapore versus Malaysia is shit just works here. <laughs> yep. You know, your public transport is, is, is great. You know, it's, it, Singapore is relatively small, so getting around is really easy. So that's been great for me, running around from one assignment to another. Mm. So you cover for this particular news portal from Malaysia called Digital News Asia, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. So as far as I'm concerned, I read it almost every day. Um, it covers a lot on the Malaysian ecosystem, but it also covers regional. I, I particularly like some of the pieces that deal with editorial every weekend by Karamjit, I think. Uh, uh, yes. Who I think is one of the founders. Maybe you can tell the audience here about the story of Digital News Asia. Yeah, and I sure. I understand it's also that most of you are actually started off from, from mainstream media as journal- professional journalists. Yes, all right, sure. Um, So Digital News Asia is a technology news portal. It was uh, founded by three, whom I call three old men, uh, three founders, who are uh, veteran technology journalists in Malaysia. The site went live in May 2012, and uh, since then we've grown... (laughs) To a grand total of five. <laughs> uh, we recently got our seed funding, so that's part of the reason why I'm now based in Singapore as we expand our coverage. So uh, Digital News Asia takes an ecosystem approach to how it covers news. So we cover everything from startups, SME, enterprise, cybersecurity, government policy, social issues and trends as it pertains to the digital economy and ICT industry. It was Founded based on a gut feel, I guess you, c- you can call it that. The three founders are Karamjit Singh, A. Asohan, and uh, Edwin Yap. They've been covering the IT, ICT industry for, for many, many years. And they, they realized that from the, when they started their careers until uh, present day, something went missing. Because uh, as Asohan likes to call it, you know, during the, the mid-80s to mid-90s, it was kind of like a golden age for Malaysia's um, tech media industry. We were pretty much uh, at the forefront in the region when it comes to critical analysis and coverage of ICT issues. Over the years, coverage of uh, tech kind of got skewed more and more towards just consumer technology, so more you know, reviews of laptops, phones, and then smartphones or feature phones and stuff like that. So they wanted to bring back that sense of uh, criticality into looking at this ecosystem and and based on a gut feel, no market crunching, no number crunching or anything like that, they founded DNA and it's been about, I guess, just over two years, under three years now. So far, so good. Specifically, you cover a lot on not just the Malaysia entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur scenes, but also the kind of the more successful companies in Malaysia, for example, MOL, 
the iProperty group, if I got it correctly, and maybe Job Street and all these. So I think the successes of the Malaysia entrepreneurs in maybe in the 90s that now they have become very, very big, basically. Yeah, so what's nice about DNA is that because we cover the ecosystem, we we have the, the luxury, I guess, or the, the scope to kind of track these companies over the course of their their growth and evolution. And also, you know, given the, the many years that, that my founders have been covering the industry, they've watched these companies grow up. It's kind of like looking at a garden for them. You know, they're watching the plants grow, which ones die, which ones thrive. It's, it's, I think it's, that's the fascinating part of what we do. So how much cultural shift now they starting to cover the Singapore ecosystem? I mean, for you, you have sort of moved from Malaysia to Singapore. And how do you yeah. see, I mean, there is, of course, other media outlets. Yep. They are, they are very consumer-centric, like your tech in Asia, E27s. But yep. what, what, what is it like to sort of now covering Singapore from your perspective? So I can split into two broad kind of areas. First, when it comes to enterprise IT, it's uh, it's a different ballgame altogether just because by default Singapore is the the de facto regional hub. Uh, it's also some, for a few vendors the APAC headquarters as well. So um, it's been pretty interesting getting for enterprise IT. The best thing I've gotten since moving to Singapore is just it's a shift in perspective and also that kind of access to these higher level executives who can give me more information about how their strategies for the region is going to be like. So um, back in, in Malaysia, it was kind of, we had to wait for, you know, glo uh, global to cascade down to regional, to cascade down to country level. And then, then we'll get like the insights into how each company plans its business strategy and meeting the demands of a changing business um, landscape. So that's been pretty cool. When it comes to startups, uh, that's also interesting because so back in Malaysia, we always say that it's not that we don't have good startups doing interesting things. It's just that they're just really, really horrible at marketing themselves and shouting about themselves. In Singapore, what I've noticed is that for the most part, a lot of the startups are slicker than the usual. It's it's possibly too slick for their own good, if if I can if I can say that. So um, you think that they are. Singapore startups are mainly more marketing than, as in, they know how to market themselves, but the substance itself is not that fantastic. Whereas in Malaysia, you're observing the reverse. Is that how I understand it? Or maybe? Well, see, it's hard to tell, right? Malaysia has its fair share of, uh, of duds. That's for, that's for sure. And also, but it's just that when they are, when they're not duds, it's hard to to dig them out because they're so bad at, at articulating their vision or, or where they they see their company or product fitting into like people's lives and stuff like that. In in, in Singapore, it's like everybody's kind of good at explaining that. So then the challenge is in the reverse in the sense that I got to shovel through the BS, as it were, and really look really closely to see whether or not that's, that's something really substantial. And uh, what I like about Singapore is that more so, because in Malaysia, what we do specialize in, uh, uh, the e-commerce space is, is quite well, well served. So the Malaysian startups are great at using technology uh, to do a business. In Singapore, I'm not sure whether it's the way the, because I'm still learning about this market, the way the universities and R&D facilities are set up and also the more international makeup of the startup community here, but I'm finding more startups that create technology. So that's kind of cool. Like there's SubNero, uh, which came out of research at NUS that's working on a software-defined underwater modem 
So they're essentially bringing connectivity underwater using modulated uh, acoustic signals to transmit data. So that's pretty cool. Then there's a front-facing one, obviously, is Visense, you know, visual image recognition search. They've been doing quite well in the market. So so it, I like I like technology more so than business, I must confess. So I like companies that are creating new things or creating new technology. So far, Singapore has been quite good in unearthing these gems. But that's not to say Malaysia is losing out. It's like, for example, most recently, I... I was very pleased and very humbled to be the first one to tell the Neuroware story, which is an outfit uh, founded by Mark Smalley, Adam Giles, and Johnny Mayo, who have, are Malay based in Malaysia. They've la uh, laid down roots in the country. And they had recently returned from being in the ninth batch of the 500 Startups Accelerator over in uh, the United States. And they debuted their product and service in beta during the London uh, edition of uh, TechCrunch Disrupt. So essentially what Neuroware does, they've, they've built a framework and API for blockchain technology, which is you know the underlying uh, foundation of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. So I think what they're doing is really cool. They're insistent on uh, headquartering themselves in KL because they're of the opinion that the, the, the pool of tech, tech talent in the country is much deeper than in Singapore. So I'm really excited to see over, over time how they fare and whether or not they'll be kicking ass at his work, as it were. Coming to that, I was kind of I've met recently one of the luminaries in Malaysia tech, um, Colin Charles, ah, over yes. a cup of coffee. And he mentioned to me that there are very interesting, subtle differences between the Singapore and the Malaysia ecosystem. And he pointed out to me that one of the things that actually Singapore got it right are the efforts of the government to try to push the universities to go into what I call the world rankings. That means trying to yeah. beat the top universities in Asia. We are talking about like the Tokyo University, yeah, Kyoto, yeah. where we, they boast Nobel Prize winners or, you know, Hong Kong, you in that line. I mean, maybe just because you know the ecosystem far deeper, do you see that education is also part of that? Look at NUS, they did a lot of overseas with Silicon Valley, I think. I mean, a lot of Singaporeans are being sent out to the, to the wild. Do you see that yeah. same... Well, <laughs> you see... To talk about the Malaysian uh, education system or landscape is a very complex and loaded question. Mm. But it essentially boils down to it's the situation is pretty... F I'm trying not to swear here, but it's pretty effing dire. The, it's, uh, I think we ran a story before on DNA where I think it was one of the ministers said that, you know, looking at the situation, I could cry. Like he, he, that was literally his direct quote. Our universities were also pushed to getting on the rankings and stuff, but the execution of these KPIs and metrics, I think, was a bit misplaced. You know, at one point, it got to the point where the universities were becoming graduate factories. They weren't, it was more about quantity versus quality. And there's a very, very big gap between the R&D units of our tertiary education institutions and industry. And uh, there have been efforts, there have always been efforts to try and bridge the two and try and give that kind of pipeline from, from lab to market. But to date, it hasn't uh, worked out as well as, um, I guess, in contrast, you can see Singapore's efforts. I mean, I've met the guys from NUS Enterprise and, and the way they go about it and the way they facilitate partnerships and go-to-market strategies. Obviously, something that Malaysia needs to look at and see how our the country can replicate it. And also, the thing about that 
particular sector or at least in the country in general is that larger issues need to be fixed first before we can even look at you know the very in the big picture the small subsection of R&D fueling the creation of new startups and new technologies and businesses right taking the education piece aside mm-hmm. what about like the brain drain that's also happening because apparently a few of the Singaporean cabinet ministers were formerly Malaysian so there's actually <laughs> a strong talent drain and uh, does that also impact the startup culture or actually you think that there is it's fairly distributed because essentially the good ones will eventually float up and the bad ones will all get filtered out. So as a card-carrying member of the, the global brain drain from Malaysia myself, I think it can split into two. Like, for example, the, the brain drain that's usually quite uh, talked about, you know, by the economists and all is centered on professionals. So you're talking doctors and lawyers and stuff. What we're seeing is, and this is what agencies like Cradle are trying to stem, is the startup drain where actually a lot of new startups or new businesses are born in Malaysia, but after they reach a certain ceiling, they hit a wall when it comes to trying to get funding. So they just pack up and move to Singapore because that is either uh, that's usually a condition of their new investors who, who they themselves are usually based in Singapore as well. So the most obvious example is uh, Grab Taxi, which most people... I've had to do a side education awareness program since I moved to Singapore. Most people don't realize it's actually a Malaysian company. They moved their headquarters to Singapore after they got funding from Vertex and decided that for their regional Southeast Asian play, it was better to shift the HQ over to Singapore. It's that kind of question that from a Malaysian startup ecosystem perspective, what role do we play in the wider picture of things? For example, I had a conversation with Alex Lin of Invercommon Investments uh, recently, and, and the way they see it is that, you know, Singapore's, uh, they want Singapore to be the hub and the gateway to other hubs on a global level. So it's almost okay that if the Singaporean, uh, the Singapore startups kind of start here, but they move on to, to other playing fields because that is the nature of the game as it were. So Malaysia hasn't quite decided what kind of role or what kind of priorities it wants. Like on one hand, you want to keep the businesses in the country because that's where, you know, job and, you know, hopefully eventually tax dollars come from. But the fact of the matter is, is that funding isn't as especially post seed stage i mean uh and maybe some of series a i mean it's really easy to get seed funding in in malaysia it's just what happens after that that's the real kind of um, glass ceiling as it were and that's what uh ends up the case being a lot of our uh, malaysian startups kind of just shift to singapore because that's where the money is but they'll keep some of their operations in, in in malaysia such as the case with Grab Taxi, which I think Malaysia is still their strongest market. Help me understand the origins of Grab Taxi. So the official story I'm getting now is <laughs> the son Anthony, yeah. who is the grandson of the founder of Tanchong Motors. Yes. What uh, is the origins of that company? Is there are there more founders involved, or is the current team still Malaysian team, maybe located in Singapore? Or has the team has transformed? Because I, I recall the story a little bit differently when I was reading DNA. I think they were started off originally as my taxi. Yes. The story as we slash DNA know it is that the company was originally founded as my taxi and actually began life as a Harvard business pitch competition entry with Anthony and two other schoolmates who are also Malaysian. Because they saw, you know, taxi app solutions taking place and, they, and also from their own experiences trying to get a cab back in, in KL. Based on that business pit, after they graduated, 
they, they wanted to do something about it, so they started the company. But due to other commitments, they weren't able to be on board fully to, to help build it. A guy by the name of Aaron Gill was brought on board, and he was the guy during the early years of uh, My Taxi, the, was the main man in kind of, you know, getting on ground and signing up taxi drivers and building the app and getting people onto the team. My Taxi can actually thank Rocket Internet's uh, Easy Taxi, actually, for where they are now because, and you can ask Aaron Gill, about this uh, and he'll admit in the early days they weren't as gung-ho and aggressive aggressive as they are now they kind of took things easy kind of I guess you could almost say like Malaysian style you know to do things in your own time kind of thing but when Easy Taxi got into the market and they started rapidly gaining market share my taxi was suddenly jolted out of this state and they realized oh my god we need to do something so that was kind of like the turning point where they rolled up their sleeves they went on ground and they signed up like you know hundreds of drivers every week consistently to grow their market share in the beginning they got some government funding they got they were a cradle uh, grant recipient as well and that helped fund the early days of their operation the turning point came when after my taxi started getting quite good traction and i think anthony uh, got had to make a decision whether or not he wanted to quit his job with tanchong i think he was marketing director there at the time and uh, you know kind of ju jump on board and and help push what he essentially started so the decision was made to for him to to jump on board and i think you can you can almost trace that kind of handing over of leadership and being the face of the company to an e27 profile that was written about anthony and, and explaining the my taxi journey where uh, that was like the first instance of anthony taking the spotlight and uh, assuming the, the leadership role for the company and then since then um as the story as most people know they've raised an impressive round of funding, multiple rounds of funding, in fact. And they grew to become really the only viable Asian-born taxi app company to invest in because there were a lot of competitors, uh, you see, to the point where even I've forgotten the other other guys in Malaysia doing it. But um, Grab Taxi's growth was phenomenal enough that, you know, investors said, you know what? This is the strongest horse of the pack. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet on this one. How do you see their trajectory now? I think you just have written a piece that now that they have 250 million yeah what is going to happen well i thought it was pretty funny just because the day the news came out that softbank gave them 250 million the next day or even i guess you could even if you want to calculate it, it could be less than 24 hours uber came out with their own announcement saying they raised another 1.2 billion uh, the ceo has actually stated in his official statement that asia pacific is going to be a region of focus for them moving forward the thing is, is that grab taxis always said that they are focused on southeast asia alone they're not looking to expand to other regions so in if that is the case then they have a pretty good shot but the and also it helps that uber has been getting some pretty bad press and easy taxi seems a bit stretched when, when you want to compare you know the the size of the war chest but a lot of people are wondering what's the end game and everybody's kind of voting like the majority of pundits leaning towards you know an eventual ipo rather than acquisition the one thing i'm curious about is to grow like growing is one thing but moving on, and you can see this in, in Uber's case as well, where, you know, it's one thing to be a technology solutions company, but you are dealing with the livelihoods of, of you know, cab drivers who form a network that you kind of do have to have some kind of control over 
to fulfill your promise of safety to passengers. So you're you know? talking about the India incident, sorry. Yeah, so the fact that it happened to an, with an Uber taxi driver, it just makes for a sexy headline. The fact of the matter is, is that the cab industries in most markets in Asia is, is messed up. You know, in most cases, it's corrupt. It's filled with less than savory characters. And, you know, there is no mechanisms in place for, you know, checking these guys, make sure they will be safe drivers for passengers. And the thing is, there's all these taxi apps, doesn't matter if it's Uber or Grab or Easy or, or whoever, they, they market heavily, they promise heavily on that aspect of safety. The thing is, is that, you know, we will always need cab. The key uh, to this whole puzzle is the drivers themselves. How do you keep the bad apples out? How do you reward the good ones in? And how do you do so within the existing regulatory an industrial framework that's been in place for decades. Like Uber is going to, obviously a good chunk of their funding is going to go into paying lawyers and, and, and lobbyists and fighting the regulatory fights because they operate in a bit a slightly grayer area. But for guys like Grab Taxi and Easy Taxi, where they're supposed to be working with taxi drivers and fleet operators, you know, how do you, you're going to have to, it's going to end up costing more money. At, at the end of the day, you know, there's only so much you can lower because on, on Grab Taxi size or any app side is like, you know, we provide the technology, but they don't provide things like, you know, insurance for drivers, which a lot of them moving towards now refurbishing the cars and stuff like that. So, you know, there's going to be more cost involved to maintain that level of service. What I'm, I'm going to be finding fascinating is that how they're going to do that and keep their overheads down because you'll see the eventual shift from a, a completely pure technology play to kind of the blurring of lines to brick and mortar and, and the headaches that come with that. So that's going to be quite fascinating moving forward. I mean, I guess Grab t there, there was one pundit who said, you know, Grab Taxi might be leasing their own fleets and then they'll engage the drivers to offset, you know, to maintain, make sure the cars are nice and then the drivers just have to work with their network and then they might offer insurance. But see, all this, all this adds to the cost of running a company. And already, I think we pulled their 2013. In Malaysia alone, they made a loss of like 1.3 million ringgit. I don't know what the 2014 numbers will look like. That'll depend on when they file those financials into the company's commission of Malaysia and to Accra here as well. Keep in mind, this is all happening within the ongoing price war that's happening. It, it was, <laughs> I found it, you know, like I think Uber here, Uber Taxi, they ended their 25% uh, uh, off all rides promotion only for then I my inbox popped up and their cop com said that promotion has ended but we start a new promotion and you get you don't have to pay the flag down fee or the, or the booking fee at all it's like it's is the race to zero almost I mean as consumers as 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 people who ride cabs that's awesome for us for now but what happens when the the war is over and there's maybe one or two left standing and they realize they're gonna have to charge more now because they they have to stem you know, the, the, the losses they're making per ride. What you're actually saying is that currently these companies are subsidizing the customer. They are. They have to. Well, then the question then becomes when they scale, would they end up becoming like traditional taxi companies? I mean, Uber has a very different trajectory, right? Because yes, Because yes. they are funded also by Google Ventures. So yep. Google is having the self-driving car. Depending on what you believe, actually, I had this conversation with Samir Singh, but we didn't because of some audio problems. We I couldn't uh -huh. publish that in one of my episodes. But he has a very interesting theory. He thinks that Google funded Uber as a hedge against self-driving cars, whereas the market thinks that Uber it's going to be the guys managing the self-driving cars for them, because ultimately 
yeah. what is the ultimate end yeah. state for Uber, right? It's yeah. not to manage the drivers. Nope. Yes. They're the most anti-driver company in play out there. You know, I think and as, as long as you keep asset light in a logistics company, you yeah. want to have automation in that case. But that will yeah. end up them owning an asset in the end. So I don't know where these are all going to. It's all it, it's for me it's 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 fascinating to speculate now. But the fact of the matter is, is 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 genuinely too early to tell, especially because you know you don't know five years from now what new development or technology or something that we can't even define now may enter into the equation and just change the possible end game for all these things. But what's 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 for sure is that based on all we know now, the Uber equation assigned, and we just focus on the pure taxi apps. I genuinely don't see how they can if they're not looking to be acquired and they're looking to be like a publicly listed company and they're an ongoing solid business, I don't see them getting away with owning some assets and turning more into more like a traditional uh, company in that sense. Like even even in the e-commerce, like the fashion space, you're seeing e-commerce stores opening up physical pop-ups or experience stores as well. It's. It, it, I have a theory on that actually. They I think the tax write-off. <laughs> no, I don't know. No, I think the reason why e-commerce company ends ends up from online to offline is the digital marketing costs have far exceeded that it is better for me to lease and rent a physical space mm. to do the distribution than to pay the digital marketing dollars because the bids for those keywords are getting too high. That's a possibility, but that Zalora store over here, it, you can't even buy from the store. They give Correct. you like little portal portals, which I found quite 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 fascinating. Um, I don't know how it would fare with with shoppers here in, in Singapore because I must confess I I hate shopping, so I'm not a big, uh, shopper online or off. Correct. So I I I'm gonna have to pull some of my my shopaholic friends yeah. later. So I think I I think that 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 is actually interesting because what you are saying about Uber also applies to the e-commerce space as well. That the customer is subsidizing. I mean, if you look at Rocket Internet's S one. It's about minus thirty to fifty percent mm, yep. EBIT, which means that they're almost subsidizing the customer by you know that large yeah. margin. So the question then becomes as of when they reach that critical mass, how are they going to get back those dollars that they lose? I mean, it's all predicated yeah. on the story of winner takes all, right? Yeah, yeah. But is uh, is that truly a situation of that we have a winner take all situation? It won't be an ultimate like one winner take all. It'll be it'll end up uh, oligopoly, I guess you could say, on a global stage. It'll be like it, it'll be like one company holds dominion over a few markets, the other company owns the other bits. So that's I think the most likely. I don't think we're going to see a case of Uber owning everything. Mm. Although I'm sure they like that. Yeah, that's a fascinating conversation on Grab Taxi. Now I want to <laughs> take the conversation to another interesting company, and I'm have actually followed this company pretty closely and that's yep. MOL. They are very interesting because a couple of years they acquired a company called Friendster. Yes. And then what they actually did, which I think is extremely smart. Yes. Because there was... I wrote all, that story. That was, all, that was yeah, a fun tale. Yes. For all that who don't know the real story, actually I knew the story before what, what happened in the exchange and what really happened was that there was this... Australian guy who ran Friendster, who was formerly from head of Google Southeast ah. Asia, okay, and he wrote out a very silly Facebook status. Was it Facebook status or Twitter status? That what should he do with a company that has social networking patterns? And that's because Friendster's traffic declined, 
And MOL did this really smart thing. Yep. Basically acquired Friendster, took the yep. patents, and went to Facebook and said, why don't I sell you this in exchange for Facebook stock? Yep. And also getting the exclusive for Facebook credits. Yep. And basically for the amount they pay, I think was US 32 million. They got back 5x the return upon Facebook IPO. One little uh, tidbit to share with you about the process of acquiring Friendster. It turns out, so in the beginning of, of the bidding, as it were, for, for Friendster, when the company went on, on the market, the owners actually went to Ganesh and said, I think it was first or second round of bidding. He said, would you be interested in buying a company if it came without the patent portfolio? And Ganesh, uh, Ganesh said, no, of course not. I want everything. Give it to me. You know, uh, I want it all. And uh, so they said, okay, I uh, noted. And then they went, they, they went back to, to, to the bidding process. So I think the flow was like in the first round, there were three bidders, MOL, a Chinese company, and one unnamed uh, US company. And then round two, it was only left MOL and the Chinese company, the, the, the US company dropped out. Now, after the fact, we found out obviously the company in the bidding process was faced none other than Facebook. So obviously, as we all know, uh, MOL ended up winning that uh, acquisition. And uh, in my interview with, with Ganesh, she said that, well, I, I knew from the start that the purpose that I wanted Friendster for was had nothing to do with the, the patent. So he was obviously the shrewd businessman that he is already planning to kind of sell it off. And, and make a little cash back on the side. But uh, he said that you know his motivation for buying Friendster was, was very simple. One was to get a recognizable brand to help open doors in, in the United States. Because you know when you, people hear MOL, they're like, who? But if you hear Friendster, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I know, I know that. Uh, and the second is, obviously, if you see Friendster now, they converted it into a social gaming network rather than a pure social networking platform. So but the most revenue or profit that they made from that whole acquisition were the patents. Yes. Because in the end, Facebook bought it from them. I agree with you. That was a, a, a brilliant, brilliant move. I yeah, mean, that was probably the best sarcasm I have with that particular person who ran Friendster to the ground. So <laughs> I thought that that was a brilliant uh, business. Unfortunately, I knew that for about one and a half year until the IPO. Mm. And so I can't talk about it. But now, you know, everything hindsight is 2020. But, but they are in a little bit of trouble lately. So they went IPO yes. in NASDAQ. So yes. what is really happening? I mean, they, they have been a really good company in terms of this kind of yeah. the gaming and payment space, but something has happened and they are in a little bit of a right, rough ride at the moment. So first, I kept in touch with Ganesh on and off during the, in the, the initial roadshow pre-IPO and stuff. And, and the, the, you know, it was, it was a, it's a, you know, roadshows for IPOs are, are really tiring performances, I guess, for the lack of a better way to describe it. On the day they IPO'd, it was unfortunately a really, really bad week for the NASDAQ overall. So they didn't get the numbers they wanted to, they didn't raise the level they wanted to. And then the next round of red flags, as it were, happened when they missed their earnings call and uh, had to postpone it to the 3rd of December. And that set off all kinds of red flags because it wasn't helped by the fact that on the same day they said they, were ha they had to postpone their earnings call, their CFO said he was resigning and had to, be, and had to step down. So uh, my colleague Dan Yu actually attended Dalian rather for the postponed earnings call, which actually took place December third. And essentially, in its filings to to the Nasdaq, it, the main thing was an issue with their accounting. So their Vietnamese assets 
So about a year and a half, two years ago, they they bought a 50% stake in a Vietnamese e-payment company. I'll have to find out the name for you at this moment. I can't call off the top of my head. They bought a 50% stake and they created a new joint venture and absorbed that assets from Vietnam. What they found out later via their auditors was that there was a discrepancy in the reporting of revenue. So um, if I understand it correctly, the Vietnamese subsidiary reported their revenue as the gross figures rather than the net figures. And so their revenue was overstated by about 1.2, 1.3 million ringgit. So that kind of screwed up the entire auditing accounting process for submission to the stock exchange. So, and the other red flag that analysts over in the U.S. Uh, have pointed out is that in the filings, they also stated that they did not anticipate the accelerated shift to mobile platforms. Now, this one's a bit iffy, uh, c- considering MOL is based out of Southeast Asia, where mobility and the mobile sector is, frankly, uh, at the leading edge. According to my colleague, Tianyu, like they recognize that shift to mobile. I think what's the issue is the internal acceleration of their own answer to it. It's other aspects of the business is actually still doing pretty well, according to um, the DNA story breaking down the numbers, which Tianyu's the numbers guy. I'm I see numbers and I, I get cross-eyed, but Tianyu loves yeah. this stuff. So by, please, this is where I plug a story. Please do check out. No, I'm going to place uh, it on the link. I uh, think the, I've actually read that article. I thought the way yeah. he analyzed it was spot on to yeah. why MOI have that. But what about the CFO leaving? Was that, a issue? Was that really a part that, that actually exacerbated the kind of well, they, 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 they uh, emphatically state and they insist that the, the, the CFO's decision to quit was purely personal, a uh, family uh, thing, and had nothing to do with the, the, the company itself. But the, the, the thing is, is that the timing of it obviously did not help the rumor mill, you know, the perception and all that stuff to the point where Tan Sri Vincent Tan actually had to issue a statement public statement reiterating his support for the future of the company i think that kind of helped shares did rebound after the december 3rd earnings call i'm not i need to check like what what level is it at now mm. but i think i could, could could be unbiased could be because they're the, the second southeast uh, asian company to list on the nasdaq after creative from singapore in 1992 but i like to think that this is growing pains of a company that's suddenly on one of the most watched stock exchanges in the in, in the world and they need to kind of level up, as it were, when it comes to their corporate accountability and, and processes, processes especially. So I like to think that maybe a year from now, if we have a conversation like this again, we'd be hopefully saying nicer things. <laughs> oh, a couple of months from now. Or maybe, yeah, yeah. hopefully. I want to sort of um, take a step down. Um, I yep. think we've been talking about Grab Taxi, which raised staggering amounts of money. We yeah. talk about MOL, we, we, a very successful company, just got listed on NASDAQ, run into a little bit of early troubles, but everything may ride its way out and they may yeah. get back to shape. Yeah. I want to talk about something that was pretty interesting that happened recently in the Malaysia startup scene, and that was yeah. the creation of what is called MAGIC, which I, I got the abbreviation is Malaysian Global Innovation and Creativity Center. Ah, Yes. Tell like me about that. What What is that about? Um, I, I understand that you invited a lot of luminaries from Southeast Asia, uh, angel yeah. investors, um, even the JFDR was there, uh, yeah. Phil was there, a yeah. um, couple of different people yeah. into for, for a week of kind of innovation, chats, p- 
panels, yep. everything. That, that was actually a, a specific event called Magic Academy, which was like a four-day extravaganza, a lot of like workshops and learnings for entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs to come in and get a taste of it as it were. Yes. I, felt, I felt bad that I have to decline to turn up because uh, I did ah. get an invitation, but I was really swamped. So ah. I, 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 would, I, would, I would love to have been there, actually. Yeah. No worries. If all goes well, they're probably having it again. So no yeah. worries on but that. Tell me, tell me more about magic because I, I, I hear a lot. I read different accounts of it. But what before the audience here who are listening yep. to this podcast, they want to know what is it about and how if I must, even for maybe some of the listeners in Malaysia who may be interested in doing startups, how do they get involved? So magic was actually born out of a speech Prime Minister Najib did in, in the lead up to the Global Entrepreneurship Summit, which Malaysia hosted. The launch of magic itself was timed with the visit of President Obama of the United States uh, to the country. So magic is a government funded agency under the Ministry of uh, Finance. And uh, with a initial budget, I believe, of 70 million ringgit. And their mandate is to help spur the startup ecosystem in Malaysia. Now, if you were to drill down on what exactly their KPIs or their exact mandate is, unfortunately, nobody but Magic themselves knows. So it's a little bit like magic. Sorry, with the puns. <laughs> By all means, pun away. We've been we've been exhausting our stash of puns as well. I think Aswan's running out of magic the gathering jokes for headlines. Okay. <laughs> the uh, fluffy acronym aside, they managed to entice back Cheryl Yo to move back from the United States to come and uh, hit this agency as the CEO. It was. In, in a way, a marketing coup for the ministry and for the government because she encapsulates what they envision for the Malaysian ecosystem to be. Uh, Cheryl is a, a seasoned entrepreneur who's had Silicon Valley experience and she is a returning Malaysian, a throw in the face of the whole brain drain thing happening. That's been a, a pet conversation topic for a lot of Malaysians actually ever since Magic came about. Uh, the key question is, what is Magic's role? Because the thing is, is that Magic's just the latest agency to be formed to tackle the whole mission of catalyzing the startup ecosystem in Malaysia. We have, I think, over 70 government agencies in the country whose mandate focuses on, includes or involves entrepreneurship in the country. Obviously, this expands uh, across uh, segments and industry verticals, not just um, uh, ICT. In fact, at one point before Magic was officially launched and fully formed, there was a bit of buzz in the industry as to what exactly its scope was, uh, was going to be. Was it going to be just IT tech startups? Was it going to be all startups where, you know, even the guys over in agriculture or, or uh, medicine and stuff like that would be uh, come under its umbrella? So when Magic did finally launch, um, the focus is definitely on uh, tech startups. They've done a, a lot of programs today. So Magic Academy is one. They've also signed a lot of agreements, and, and uh, with, for example, with uh, Stanford University. And they've actually just recently completed uh, their first batch of um, e-Stanford uh, program participants, where I think about 60 Malaysians were sent to the United States for a two-week program to hear from the guys over there, learn and, and visit the headquarters of all the different um, iconic offices. I think a lot of fun was had, especially since my Facebook feed got flooded because I know quite a few of the guys on Facebook uh, with uh, photos of we're here at Google HQ, we're here at whichever, Facebook HQ, and all that stuff. The whole point is to try and build up these connections to other startup hubs, Silicon Valley, obviously. And But what is key, actually, you would like this, Bernard, is that 
during the budget to, uh, 2015 speech, the Prime Minister mentioned that uh, they will be looking to offering uh, foreign entrepreneurs, if they were to set up their startup in Malaysia, a lower capital level, I think paid up capital of like 75,000 ringgit, if I'm not mistaken, and a one-year uh, work permit to come to Malaysia to set up their startups. That's very similar to the startup visa in yeah. the... In Singapore, I think five years ago, um, I think the Chile yes. and the UK startup visa, I think 75,000 yep. ring is about the right number yep. if yep. you convert based mm. on. The, so yeah. the, it was actually inspired by the startup Chile model. In fact, recently a, a delegation from Malaysia visited Chile for further inspiration. Lovely, as you can tell, as a still tax-paying Malaysian citizen, I quite enjoyed that. It's, it's great in the sense that Malaysia's ecosystem, one thing, it's very Malaysian. I actually have, is of the opinion that it needs to be more diversified in terms of the backgrounds and nationalities of entrepreneurs in the community, if only for knowledge sharing and perspective widening. At first, we, the understanding was, at first we thought, you know, post-budget madness being what it is, that it would be open, it would be a nationwide kind of policy. But it turns out that it will only be, because it's a pilot program actually, it will only be eligible for entrepreneur, foreign entrepreneurs that go through Magic's specific uh, accelerator program. When that piece of information came out, that got some mixed reviews, as it were. It'll be interesting to see how they execute that. So what, to me, the biggest thing Magic has done to date, apart from uh, doing all these programs with guys over in the Silicon Valley and, and uh, universities there, is that they've also kind of co-opted or the nice way to say it is united, the, the grassroots startup community across the country. So, um, you know, before there were guys kind of doing their own thing out of enthusiasm and passion in like Penang and Johor and, and Malacca and other states. What Magic has done is they've kind of co-opted everybody and put them under under their, their banner, giving them support and stuff like that. On one hand, I think that's great. Uh, on the other, we don't know what we don't know what the KPI is, essentially. We don't know what it is they're, they're supposed to do apart from being an events organizer and a connections uh, uh, manager. I think uh, in a conversation with Cheryl, she did mention that they're going to try and see if they can become the, the one-stop shop because all like 70 plus agencies, nobody knows which agency to go to for help or assistance or to do something. So they're trying to work towards streamlining a communications process so that, you know, entrepreneurs will go to Magic and say, this is what I've got, this is what I hope to do, can you direct me? So they have a physical space? They do a uh, brand spanking building in Cyberjaya, which was, I think, renovated and acquired to the tune of just over 10 million ringgit. That was lovely. So it's right, like, so it's right next to an international college. It's a, it's a nice space. And they're always inviting people to come over, which is also quite entertaining because Cyberjaya is about an hour's plus drive away from Kuala Lumpur. I think they're working on creating like a shuttle bus service or petitioning for the public transport networks to be a, the building up of that to be accelerated into that particular area. So that, that would really help because the space is great. I've been there many times. It's a cool building. It's just that most people don't live near Cyberjaya. So that's another issue. But I think what I heard as well is that they're also looking at opening up kind of like co-working spaces and hubs uh, within the Klang Valley. So that might, might be quite cool as well. Then that would definitely help. But yeah, Magic is still, a lot, uh, still very early in its inception. 
and it comes on the in the wake of many many other agencies for example MDEC and you know you did ask in a conversation outside of this interview you know what's the difference between MathCap MDEC and, and Magic so so MathCap obviously is venture and investment fund and they actually do have a limited partnership with 500 startups or 500 Durans so Kylie Kylie Young is, is their partner on that they're just focusing on identifying a potential investments deals to go into MDEC was formed when the MSC Malaysia, the Multimedia Super Corridor Plan was launched. I think now it's about eight, 19 years ago. So MDEC's mandate was actually to accelerate the adoption of technology across the nation. Like right now, they're on their Digital Malaysia Initiative, which in, in its first phase of MDEC's existence, they focused on leveling up the ICT industry to global standards. And in the second phase, the Digital Malaysia Initiative, they're focused on getting Malaysian citizens to use more technology and use the access afforded to them by uh, the internet, broadband connectivity and mobility to become not consumers but producers of products and services. So MDEC did, does do a lot with startups and entrepreneurship, multiple programs, but they're a large government agency and they do more than that. Obviously, they also look at the data center industry in Malaysia, looking to position it as a hub. Still losing out to Singapore, alas, or Hong Kong, but uh, they're working on it. Uh, that has a lot to do with a larger issue of uh, connectivity in the country in general and the fact that we do have a bit of a monopoly when it comes to the infrastructure in the form of Telecom Malaysia, though time is, is still fighting the good fight. MDEC's actually most front-facing success is actually in the development of uh, Malaysia's uh, creative content industry. So, you know, the animations and the feature films. So we started off like we... I think Malaysia has kind of clawed its way up the value chain in that sense. So we started off being like the outsource hub where studios in the United States or Europe or even like Japan and, and Korea would, would send us work to do in terms of, you know, basic rendering or animations and stuff like that. And then uh, over time, in terms of moving up the value chain, Malaysian companies and studios started creating their own intellectual property. Obviously, the, the biggest one that they keep splashing around is Bin and Ipin which is a franchise now. I think it's a cartoon series about you know, two boys in a, in a village with really, really high-pitched voices. And uh, I think the ne the, another success is obviously a Bobo Boy, also a similar kind of thing that's being uh, exported out to markets like Indonesia for, for broadcast, which is cool. And I think it's also on the, like, the Nickelodeon network or something like that. And obviously the big, big one is obviously um, Life of Pi. The guys uh, back in K always like to say, you know, the Tigers Malaysian. Because the studio uh, Rhythm and Hughes, before it was uh, uh, shut down here, or at least the brand, because the US studio filed for bankruptcy, the, it was the Malaysian studio that uh, animated and did the rendering of the, the tiger, all the fur and the hair and stuff like that. So, 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 we, you, yeah. so you have a growing media industry. Yeah. But then you also have very interesting large companies. I mean, we talk about MOL, there is also yeah. iProperty and Catcher Group, right? Yeah. How do these companies? operate with the startup community. I mean, the way usually happens is that um, in any ecosystem, if you look at carefully at Silicon Valley, it's not just the startup ecosystem. There must yeah. be the big companies who were once startups like the Apples, the Googles, the yeah. Facebook now, the Twitters to, to feed into that startup ecosystem. So how, how are these companies operating with the startup community? In that. I mean, in Singapore's case would be Singtel. Uh, well, one guy here actually told me a joke. The mantra of, of Singaporean startups is um, sell to Singtel, <laughs> which I found quite amusing. Well, um, there's uh, other buyers like SPH as well. Mm, they acquired mm -hmm. the yeah. SG Karmats, you know, the yeah. Trope and all that. Unfortunately, in Malaysia, that 
hasn't quite been the case. There have been sporadic kind of acquisitions by the larger uh, Malaysian uh, companies. But by and large, it's not a thing the large Malaysian companies do. Like, I guess the Malaysian equivalent of SPH and all like, you know, Media Prima, or Astro, they're not acquiring startups in that sense. They're not open to, to shop uh, in that sense. And also when you talk about the telcos, their participation in the ecosystem is, is a little different. So in the case of like Catcher and MOL, so in MOL's case, they're not doing anything as yet except for when Ganesh has time like he'll sit on panels and he'll give advice or share his own learnings and stuff I think there is one found I think Patrick Grove does quite a bit he's founded a separate like sort of venture funds and stuff like that to invest in uh, promising Southeast Asian uh, internet startups as well but in terms of the, the entities themselves participating in the startup ecosystem specifically it's very limited so no, you I'm don't not- see a situation of mergers and acquisitions from these large companies to the, on the startup side, it's still going to be very sporadic. I mean, even in Singapore's case, it's also yeah. very sporadic as well. Yeah, they're not like if you if they are going to be participating, it's more of like maybe they'll they'll set aside some money and maybe they'll do some seed funding on the side. But that's maybe on the individual owner level, not on a corporate level. You don't even see equi hires. Very few, like to the point where if you were to ask me off the top of my head, I can't even recall. Like it's, it's that sporadic and it's that. And also the other problem for us is that sometimes a lot of these deals, if they happen at all, happen quiet under the radar. They don't want to say anything. You know, it's that it's that mm-hmm. kind of um, environment. In Malaysia. Correct. So I guess when we talk about the Malaysia ecosystem, it's usually centered around KL, Klang Valley, or some cyber jaya, if you add that on. Malaysia is a very big country. So you have a lot of other provinces and cities. Other than KL, I mean, I asked the same question to Rama on Indonesia. He would be able to tell me Bandung and his whole list, except Bali, okay? Bali is not his (laughs) favorite place. Where uh, are the is where people go to, you know, code on the beach with their Mai Tais and stuff, if I remember correctly. Yeah, <laughs> not doing the real stuff, basically relaxing on the beach. But <laughs> in Malaysia, coming back to that, yeah. where where are the other hotspots? I mean, Penang, I heard, is an interesting hotspot, but I don't know from... I mean, you know the space definitely far more than I do, so... There are really only two other hotspots or, or, or something resembling a hub in Malaysia outside of Klang Valley, and that is uh, Penang, as you mentioned, and the other one is actually Johor, due to its proximity to, to Singapore and, and the, the general build-up of development in that, in that state, uh, thanks to the spillover uh, from Singapore's uh, businesses and also investments, actually, that even uh, MOL's Ganesh is a part of because Ganesh is a native of the state of Johor. Uh, so he's actually invested back in his home state in terms of, I think he's got a couple of deals in uh, property, but also looking into developing the technology talent in the state as well and helping companies. So I guess, yeah, in a way, uh, on an individual level, Ganesh is giving back to the ecosystem in that sense. Penang is an interesting one because Penang is our literal Silicon Valley. That's where all our manufacturers sit. You know, WD, uh, Dell, and Intel. And Intel. Yeah, they have uh, quite uh, significant uh, operations there. I've actually gotten mixed reviews about Penang as a hub. So on one hand, you would think that it makes for a natural hub 
for hardware-based startups, just because of the depth of uh, engineering talent available in in this in that state alone. But one guy I talked to actually said that you'd think that'd be the case, but unfortunately, the number of people willing to make that jump and take that risk into entrepreneurship is actually very low, just because the guys like Intel and WD and all make it worth their while to stay with the company. So you know they get accustomed to a certain level of of salary and 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 all that. So it's very uh, handful of the truly passionate and dedicated that would jump out of uh, that comfort zone to become their own entrepreneurs. But that being said, you know, it depends on how you want to define the tech startup, uh, as you know, because there are a lot of SME level companies based out of Penang that do a lot of white label manufacturing and stuff like that as well. It's just that they're not doing anything particularly, um, you know, consumer facing with their own brand, that kind of stuff. Although There is also sure. a huge uh, BPO initiative, I think, led by Tomasic into Penang now. I think uh, there yes. was news on about they invested about, I think, in US range is about 300 over million yep. to look at the business process outsourcing piece. So yep. Penang is more of that processing yep. or could be even the hub for the large companies to operate out of uh, the market. Do you see funny. that happening? Uh, what's funny is that Penang is a very, actually a very attractive destination for that kind of stuff. In Malaysia's case, it's a case of like state versus state because Johor is also positioning itself as a BPO a hub uh, right. thanks to the Iskandar development and, and stuff like that. So um, for me, it's like it's great because it's both in Malaysia. It's the same taxation system. So that's going to be awesome. The revenue is coming in from there. Mm. But, so, but it's just a question of then the fight for which state gets the contract. You know, we'll see whether uh, how that plays out. Johor is actually really interesting in the sense that it's also where a lot of uh, foreign universities have their campuses as well, like Nottingham University um, has a campus in, in the Iskana development. So I'm wondering whether that could be a potential hub for Johor in, in, in that sense, where maybe the R&D work come out from, from that state uh, in, in, in collaboration with the foreign universities who've had the campus, so there's a knowledge sharing and stuff like that. Mm. So that I, would be pretty cool. Right. I think the, the Johor case, because of the... The model of the Iskandar region, which is in Johor, is kind of Malaysia and Singapore's effort to replicate the Shenzhen-Hong Kong mm, yes. relationship. So, yeah. I mean, there will be some time before that really come to fruition. It'll, it's definitely be a while. I think Frost and Sullivan as well has committed to uh, an operation in uh, Iskandar specifically. And I think I met one of the analysts. He's like, I have to hire uh, I think about a few hundred analysts or and staff to 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 fill up the this kind of office. So everything like the foundations, the oper- the facility is is there. So now it's up to the companies themselves to attract the talent to relocate and to move and make Johor their hub. Mm. So that that should be interesting. So I guess we are almost reaching the hour mark. I kind of want to solve. Um, I think that there's going to be much more conversation. I'm sure we are going to talk again in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Cool. Again. <laughs> and I saw one to help my audience to find you. Mm-hmm. How do they find you? You can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is um, Gabby Go. And you can also find me on LinkedIn under the same name and, and Facebook as well. I'm always online. I'm always lurking. And obviously, you can go to digitalnewsasia.com and, and check out you know, what our content and hopefully you like what you see. You can definitely find me at bilongcworbanalong.com. And as for Analyze Asia, we also have our Twitter, which is at Analyze Asia with an S and not a Z. 
uh, analyze.asia. Always feel free to drop us feedback and we will be always be ready to hear what you have and hopefully improve better. So Gabby, thanks again to, for this interview. All right. Thank you for having me.